James chapter 5. We're going to finish up this book. Uh, we're going to do something for Palm Sunday next week. Easter the next. We'll figure something out for that. Uh, maybe Easter bunnies or something. And, uh, and, then, and then after that, we're going to go into a series in Ruth, five weeks in Ruth. Um, I'll say this. If you are a woman, Ruth is the series for you. Uh, Ruth was a very godly woman, great example. Uh, there's, there's a lot to learn from Ruth. Um, if you are a guy, uh, Ruth is the series for you. It is going to be fantastic to learn about godly women and what you might want to be holding out for and stop dating. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then there's a guy in there named Boaz who's a pretty solid dude that we can learn from. So um, that should pretty much take care of everyone and, uh, and, and you all should be there. So uh, we'll do that for five weeks. After that, we'll, we will uh, move into our summer series. We tend to do topical stuff in the summer that's a little more discipleship oriented, a little maybe a little bit uh, deeper kind of stuff. And so we're going to do a 13-week series um, on doctrine and 13 core doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, it's going to be, it's actually going to be, I think, really good. I love teaching that kind of stuff. And so uh, it's kind of right up, right up my alley. And uh, we will be using structurally at least, the, the book Doctrine by Mark Driscoll and Jerry Bershears, um, which is one of the most readable theology books uh, we've, I've ever come across. And so we're going to have those available to buy at cost as a resource for you um, during that series as well. But we'll do that, and then in the fall we'll figure something out, okay? So there's your update. James 5, um, in order to uh, preach James 5, 13 through 20, I want us to turn to James 1, 2 through 4. If you were here 12 weeks ago when we started this series, you'll remember that uh, the context for the book of James um, is, is one of suffering and trials. That from the very outset, that's, that's kind of the issue that James was addressing. Um, and so what we see a lot of times in books of the Bible, and the best example may be James, um, that an author starts and ends in essentially the same place um, to kind of bookend thematically. And then in the middle, we get a bunch of practical stuff, um, uh, kind of a Applying that, that main theme. And so in James 1, 2 through 4, James started by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James writes to these Christian Jews who have been scattered um, around the region outside of Jerusalem. So some of them are in Egypt, some in Turkey, some in, in Rome. Um, and they are out away from home. They are uh, largely an oppressed minority group. Um, they are politically oppressed, economically oppressed. They're minority in their country so they cannot have positions of power and most of them are, are experiencing the effects of that and so James writes this letter to them James who was the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem writes this letter to these Jewish Christians and no doubt as they're unrolling the scroll they're expecting James to say don't worry the Holy Spirit is going to come he's going to he's going to He's going to beat the kings, let's just put it that way, and, and you are going to be freed, and you're going to all be in positions of power, and it's going to go really well. But that's not at all what he says. You can get that. Um, he says, he says uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds. He goes, when, when you're in the midst of trial, when they're in the midst of suffering, he says, you, you should be counting it as joy, considering it a good thing when you encounter trials. And, and so this, this is very much not what they were hoping for. Okay, and it's, it's very much probably not what we would want to hear in the midst of trial. 
right? When we're having a bad day, when something's not going well, when a relationship's falling apart, when we just found out, you know, even just suffering kind of lives the spectrum, right? From little stuff to, to, to death and loss and job loss and all, all these kinds of things down to um, just small annoyances and woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It kind of is this big spectrum. Usually, no matter where it lies on the spectrum, the last thing we want somebody to tell you is, it's okay. Um, it, it'll end well. There's a purpose for this. You should be happy. You should be joyful that this is happening. That's really the last thing usually that we want to hear. Usually it's, don't worry, it'll be over. Um, God doesn't like that person either. Um, you know, we, we want to be kind of encouraged um, in our suffering and we want all of our bad feelings to be kind of validated by the people around us. So um, James goes, consider it a joy when you experience these trials because, and he gives us a because, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have, a, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so James goes, the trials that you're experiencing now are a good thing because they will produce in you an ability to endure more trials and strength in the midst of more trials because the one thing we can guarantee in life is the trial you're experiencing now is not your last trial. Okay, Your last trial that you had will not be your final trial. There will be more over and over and over and over. And so if you can endure this trial well, have the perspective that you need to have on this trial, the result will be you'll be better prepared for the next one and the next one and the next one, culminating in this this perfection, completion in Christ. That we will essentially become more and more mature in our faith as a result of these trials. Okay, so essentially what James is saying here in chapter one is, if you can face down pain, pain of all kinds, if you can face down loss, if you can face down brokenness, if you can face down suffering, and in the midst of that, not just kind of grit your teeth and get through it, but actually go, I'm excited about this. I'm, I'm rejoicing about this. I may not be happy that I'm, I'm enduring this pain. I may not be happy that someone in my life is dying. Someone in my life has cancer. I've lost my job. My family's lost it. I may not be happy about it, but I rejoice in it because I know that through it, God is going to make me more spiritually mature. I am going to be better able to know God, to love God, to experience God. That's what James is saying to which many of us would, would reply. Uh, that's not that good. Right? If we're honest, this is church, so we all go, oh, that's fantastic, I get to know Jesus more. Right? But when we're honest, when we're really honest, we go, so, so you're telling me that um, I should have a good attitude and, have, and rejoice when my, when my mom's got cancer because it'll make me a better Christian? That's it? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to face down suffering because it will make me nearer to God? That's all? That, that's the promise of James? That's a terrible promise we think inside our own heads, but we say, praise be to the Lord, right? So there is an underlying assumption here that James brings to this text and James brings to this letter and to his life that, that is the only way a text like this makes sense. And we find it in verse one. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That James starts his entire letter by going, I am James, I am a servant. The Greek there is doulos, which means willing slave of God and of Jesus Christ. That the underlying assumption here is that knowing God, loving God, experiencing God is the most ultimate thing you can experience in the universe. That there's nothing better. There's, there's no pursuit more important than your relationship with God. 
That's the underlying assumption. Now, you may believe that or you may not believe that, but that's James's assumption, and, that, and, and that's the reason why he can write, consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because it will produce in you steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it has its full effect, will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James can say that with a straight face because James believes what many of us do not believe, which is there's nothing more important in the world than knowing Jesus. Some of us believe that. Some of us are, are growing in our belief of that. Okay? But, but that's James' presupposition, that there's nothing more important than that. Therefore, when we, face, when we see cancer, when we're faced with cancer, when we're faced with job loss, when we're faced with broken relationships, we can go, okay, this, this is horrible. This is painful. This is, let's recognize the fact that this is not the world as God intended it to be. When God created the universe, he created it perfect, without sin, without pain, without suffering. It went bad in Genesis 3, and so we have the world that we have. So we need to recognize, one, this is not how it should be. Two, there is real pain. We don't want to skip over the grieving. We don't want to skip over the pain and just pretend like nothing's going bad. Because we go, oh, but Jesus, but Jesus. We go, let's, let's acknowledge that this is broken. Let's acknowledge that this is hard, but then go in the midst of it, you know what, but, but I think God's doing something in this. I, th- I think God's doing something in this. And, and I'm going to believe that this is, as James says, going to make me better able to know God, love God, and experience God. And that's the most ultimate thing. So I can face down cancer because knowing God is what's most ultimate. Now, if, if we think that knowing God is an average pursuit then, then we will never face down cancer the way we're supposed to face down cancer. If we think that loving God is kind of from really religious people, and I'm, I'm not that, then you will always have the wrong perspective, always have the wrong attitude when, when you lose your job. When, when you think experiencing God is a pipe dream for the prophets in the Old Testament and the super spiritual weirdos now, then, then when your relationship goes in the tank, so will you. Because there will be no reason for you to push through those hard times. There will be no goal at the other end. Those will only be obstacles. They will only be walls. They, they will not be a process of maturation for you. Okay. So that's where we start. And then James gives us a whole bunch of little practical things through two, three, four, and we get to five. And we get really to the heart of where this, some of this suffering is coming from, um, even within the church. Um, we see at the beginning of 5, verses 1 through 6, James going after the rich for oppressing the poor and mistreating them. And then in 7 through 12, James goes after the poor and says, you're not really suffering that well. Right? He, he says, you're, you're suffering at the hands of the rich. I get that. But you're being impatient. You're grumbling. You're complaining. You're arguing with one another. You're blaming God. You're, you're not exactly suffering well. You're, you're not getting James 1. Okay, so, so he brings that as kind of a conviction to those people going, you, you're not, where we started, you, you're not getting that. And so I'm going to bring this conviction. And then he's going to give us the kind of the so what on that in this last section of what that means. When, when we don't suffer well, when we're in the midst of pain and we're losing the battle, right? It just feels like it's suffocating us. It feels, it feels claustrophobic. It feels like it's the only thing happening in the universe. Right? I mean, that, that's how we experience pain so often, isn't it? That, it? that it just feels like it's everywhere. It's the first thing we think about when we wake up in the morning. It's the, thing, it's the last thing we think about when we go to sleep. It keeps us up at night. 
everything we see, everything we experience reminds us of our pain, reminds us of whatever that, whatever that thing is that's bothering us, that's suffering in our life. Everything seems to remind us. Every conversation, everything we do, everything we eat, everything we see, it just reminds us. And it seems like everybody should know about our situation. Because it's all, it's all around us. And, and our, our life, our very existence, moment by moment, is defined by that pain. Everything's kind of run through the filter of that pain. And it seems like everybody is going on with their lives when you're still struggling with it. Your, your, your mom's dying. Your dad's dying. You're, I mean, there's, there's real suffering. And everyone else is just kind of living their lives. And you're going, wait, but, but my dad's dying. Don't, don't you? So there, there's this kind of it's all over you kind of experience in that. And so when we're drowning in the midst of that, when we're not able to kind of rise above, see what God's doing and still experiencing the pain, not, not missing that, not underestimating it, but, but kind of getting through it going, no, but God's producing something in me through this. Okay, and instead of that, we, we, we sin, we get impatient, we blame God, we get angry, we, get all, we, we do all these things. So um, what James is going to do in this last section is give us kind of the remedy for this, and it's, it's really simple. Verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. This, this seems like the, the churchy answer to the problem, right? It, it, it seems like we, we get to this point after, you know, after five chapters of, of suffering and, and oppression and problems and whatever, whatever is going on here with these people, whatever's going on in our lives. And it, almost, it almost feels a little trite it almost feels a little churchy um, for, for James to go, hey, are you suffering? Are you one of those who are suffering? Pray. Why don't you pray? And, and I feel like James having to say what seems so simple, what seems so trite, which seems so obvious, James having to say it might mean that that is not our natural inclination. He, he might kind of be on to something here, realizing that, that prayer is, is not our typical first flinch when something goes bad in our lives. Right? We, we respond in self-sufficiency. We respond in um, kind of closing ourselves off. We respond by pushing people away. We respond by kind of white-knuckling, bootstrapping our way through the situation. But a lot of times our first flinch is not go to God in prayer. Right? And I think there's, there's a lot of reasons why that may be the case. I think the first is our natural just proclivity towards self-sufficiency. Right? It starts really young. So my daughter, Lily, two and a half, she's already sinning in this way pretty dramatically. Um, we, uh, we were going to the zoo yesterday, and I, I was getting her out of bed to put her, her socks and her boots on um, to, uh, to, to go because it was raining yesterday, so she needed to wear her boots. And she's terrible at putting the boots on because they're big and they're kind of hard to get on. And then there's a zipper, and she's really bad at zippers. We're working on it. That's a tough one, right? Zippers. Um, but she can't handle it. And so, um, so I, I said, okay, well, sit down. I'll, I'll get your, your socks and your boots on. She goes, no, I can do it. I said, no, I think history proves that you can't do it. So just let, let me put your socks. No, I can do it. I no need your help. Right, we're working on her grammar too. Um, but she, she says, I, I, I no need your help. I'm like, fine, go. And I just stand there. I'm like, let's see what you got. And so she's kind of working the sock. And she finally, it takes her like five minutes to get the sock. And I'm like, let's go. Come on. The, the tigers aren't going to wait forever. So she's, you know, working the sock. She finally gets the sock on. And then she's putting the boot on the wrong foot. I'm like, hey, wrong foot, you know. And, and, and finally, finally, she goes, it's hard. Like, for you? It's not hard for me. 
I'd have, we, we'd, be, we'd be petting tigers by now if I'd have been doing it. It's hard for you. But that, that's, all, that's always your thing. He goes, I want to do it. I, I can do it. I can do it. And then when she can't, she goes, it's hard. Not, not I failed, but it's hard, right? It's not hard for me. I'm stronger than you. I'm smarter than you. And, and maybe hard for you from, coming from where you're at, but it's not that hard for me. So why don't you just let me do it in the first place? Right. And so we had a moment there and then we got in the car and we were, we were driving to the zoo and I was telling my wife about the situation. And then I thought, yeah, it's really actually pretty similar to a counseling appointment I had with a 40 year old man this week. So somewhere between two and a half year old girl and 40 year old man, no movement. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, that's, uh, that's interesting that that self-sufficiency that starts at two and a half never, never really changes. Right, it, it, there, there's that, that's, that seed of kind of pride, of arrogance, of stubbornness, of I can do it and I don't need your help, um, starts really young and, and kind of never, never stops, really. Never stops tugging on us. And so um, the same way where um, socks and boots are not a struggle for me, but they're a huge struggle for her, cancer, not a struggle for God, huge struggle for us. Loss of job, not a struggle for God, big struggle for us. Most of the suffering in our life, let's say all of the suffering in our life, big struggle for us, not struggle at all for God. And yet, like my daughter won't let me help her with her shoes, we won't go to God. Okay. Because we think we can handle it on our own. We're, we're self-sufficient. We're Americans. We've bootstrapped our way through um, you know, cultivating this entire culture of, of I can do it. I don't need anybody's help. I'm a rugged individualist. And not only do I, I, I not need um, anybody's, I definitely don't need God's help. I don't need to go to some, some you know, sky fairy for anything. I, I, I've got it handled. Okay? So I, th- I think that's a reason. I think, too, I think most of us actually believe in a sky fairy and not a God. I think some of us have an underlying um, assumption, an underlying belief that we probably wouldn't say out loud, but it's functionally true. It proves itself in our lives that we don't think God's actually that godlike. We don't actually expect God to do real big things in our lives. We, we, we call him God or we call God God, but, but in reality we interact with God as if it was some kind of fairy or kind of sprite, you know, not the, this, but the, you know. So um, there, there's, there's, a, there's an, an actual understanding that, that God is not that powerful. Because when we come up, with, come up against big suffering, big problem, big issue, big question, our flinch isn't to go to God who might actually have the answer. I mean, it seems like if God's God and the very definition of what is God, there, there is a supernatural, there is a wisdom, there is an omniscience, there is an all-powerful, seems like that's inherent in the definition of God. And so what we call God is, is most often for us maybe a fortune teller, maybe you know, a, a, an advocate for us, maybe kind of just an advice giver giver, but not really a God that we would ask and expect big things in our lives. I mean, how, how many times has, has someone um, been stricken with terminal illness in your life and you never even asked God to heal? Him? Or, or if you did, you kind of just did it because you're supposed to kind of a token God heal this person. But really, if you, if you, if you were honest, there wasn't a, a core belief that it would actually happen. You know, that's something that happens in the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. That happened in the Bible, maybe, but not, not now. 
So I, I think we struggle with self-sufficiency. I think we struggle with um, a disbelief in the greatness of God and the power of God. I think some of us struggle with um, believing that God's actually interested in our day-to-day. I think functionally a lot of us think God was kind of um, like Plato's unmoved mover, just kind of got the universe started and then, you know, more of a philosophical concept than a personal God who, who's, who's intimately involved in our day-to-day lives, who cares deeply about the, the nuances and the little things in our life. I think some of us have, have this kind of idea of a distant father um, who, who never really cared about the details, never really showed up for the games, never really was involved in my life, just kind of was there to bring consequences when mom, who, who was involved, told him to. And so we've kind of put that on God and said, God's, God's not really interested in my day-to-day. He's not really interested in, in the nitty-gritty of my life. He's just kind of out there. So I think we don't go to God. Um, and then I think, I think last, sometimes we, we don't go to God because we're concerned that what God wants for us isn't really what we want. That if we went to God and said, um, hey God, the, the, here's the situation in my life, please help me, please shepherd me through this, lead me through this, please answer my prayer, just help solve this problem. I think there's a little bit of um, maybe in the back of our head that our parents always wanted to eat our vegetables and then there was, there was a, we always wanted, we always had to clean our rooms. We always had to do the stuff we didn't really want to do. And there may be an idea in our head that what God wants for us isn't what we want for us. That when we go to God and go, hey, God, I lost my job. I've lost my mom. I'm losing my dad. I'm, you know, I'm losing these relationships. My, I'm, uh, you know, the, these significant suffering in my life. When we go, God, I, I need your help in this. We, we're, there's something in the back of our heads that goes, I, I'm worried that God's going to go, yeah, you need to get through it. You need to walk through it. I'm not going to take this thing away from you. I'm going to make you experience it because in the end, it's going to produce something really valuable in you. Kind of that, kind of that James 1 idea that, that suffering produces steadfastness, which at the end, when it reaches its fullness, we're perfect and complete, lacking nothing in our relationship with Christ. And we go, oh, that's not that winsome. That, that's, that's, not really, that's not really what I'm looking for. I, I'm coming to you going, take this away from me. And God's going, no. You need to have this. You need to have this. Okay. So James states what seems pretty obvious. If you're enduring suffering, pray. Go to God. He's actually going to give us three things that we ought to do, and this is the easy one. This is the easy one. Because all, all, all this one takes is the humility to, to admit, I'm not God. God is God. I can't get my way out of this. God can help me navigate this. I can't remove this suffering. God could and sometimes will, but it just takes a level of humility to to acknowledge kind of fully to God that I'm not God, God's God, and I need him. Okay. There's two other things that that James is going to have us do, and they just get progressively harder. Okay. So, So some of us are struggling with the easy one. You're in trouble. Okay, so he takes a little bit of a right turn at the end of 13 and says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, um, he, this is, this is going to be important to set the tone for the rest of the passage. It's interesting that James doesn't juxtapose suffering with luxury. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't juxtapose want with plenty. He juxtaposes suffering with cheerfulness, which is interesting. Okay, um, this, this word for cheerfulness exists three times in your New Testament. The other two times is translated, take courage. Okay, to, to be encouraged, to be courageous in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of trial. 
So what, what he's really doing is going, listen, um, is anyone suffering and struggling with that suffering? Is anyone there in James 1 not able to do it? Now he's echoing what he says at the end in verse 5, saying, listen, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, right? So he's given us the same thing at the end that he gave us at the beginning, going, listen, there's suffering, and you can suffer well, and you can learn and grow as a result of it, or you can suffer badly and really be struggling and be, be tempted towards sin in the midst of your struggling. He goes, if that's you and you're tempted towards sin, pray. Pray that God would give you the perspective. Pray that God would help you navigate your way through the suffering. Because, but if, if you're cheerful in the midst of it, if you're joyful in the midst of it, if you're courageous through the midst of it, and you're enduring suffering, but you're enduring it well, he goes, sing praise. Sing praise. And this is, this is, I think, an important deal that he goes, listen, if you've got this moment where um, you're, you're walking through suffering and you know it's hard, but some, for some reason you have this joyful spirit and you're going, you know what? God's going to do something in this. He goes, that, that's a sign of spiritual maturity. And you ought to sing praise for that. Okay, so spiritual maturity sometimes happens the same way, I think most of the time happens the same way aging happens. Right, like today you don't feel older than you did yesterday, but you feel older than you did 10 years ago, right? Like you don't, you don't see the effects of aging on a day-to-day basis. You just one day kind of look in the mirror and go, oh, where'd all the hair go, right? Like so there, there, it, it's kind of one of these moments where, where your eyes are open and you can kind of see. Like a couple of weeks ago I was hanging out with some friends and we were, somehow got on the conversation of how old we were. And I said, yeah, I'm 31. And someone goes, no, you're not. You're 32. I was like, dang it, I just lost, I just lost a year, like overnight, right? I'd been lying to people, saying I was 31 for like four months, totally lost, and I'm going, man, I'm 32, I'm old. Now, I'm not as old as some of you, but, but, I'm, but I'm old, okay? And so there, there's these moments where you, your eyes are kind of open, you go, wow, I'm, so I, I, got a, I got a knee injury, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but I've played sports my whole life and never been really injured. And I have a knee injury now. I'm going, man, I got a knee. I got a bad knee. I'm an old man. My, ba- my hip's going to go out soon, right? Like, uh, it, this is not good. So there, there's these moments where our eyes can be opened um, to see the growth, the aging, the maturation in our lives. And he goes, these can be moments like that for our, for our spiritual life, for our spiritual maturation. When we are in the midst of trial and we realize, you know what? This is hard. This, this is really hard, and yet I, I have this perspective that God's doing something in this. And we, those can be moments where we go, man, God, God's really growing me up. I'm, I'm really maturing through this. Because last time I suffered, I responded really, really badly. And I shook my fist at God, and I blamed the people around me. But, but now I see, I see in the midst of this, man, God's, God's really doing something. So there's probably not a person in this room that can't look back on a moment in their lives and go, man, that was really hard. That was painful. I cried a lot. I struggled a lot. I cursed God. I shook my hand. I, I, I just, that was a really hard time. But I wouldn't change it. Like that moment made me who I am today. So I wouldn't change. As hard as it was, as difficult as it was, as much of a struggle as that was, I wouldn't take it away because that led to that, which led to that, which led to that. I mean, the hardest thing in my life, I tracked towards um, planting this church, meeting my wife, getting married. I mean, all of that came as a result of one of the hardest things that ever happened in my life. So there, there's all of, all of us have those moments where we look back and go, 
that was really hard, but I wouldn't change it. So what if we were able to remember that when we're in the middle of it? Like it's one thing to go, hey, th- that was hard, but now a year later, two years later, 10 years later, I-, I wouldn't change it. I see what God was doing. What if we were in the middle of it and able to go, I don't know what God's going to do, but I believe that he's going to do something. I believe that even though I would want this taken away from me today, that five years from now, I'm going to wish that it would never have not happened. Okay, that was terrible. Um, but I, I, I'm going I'm to be so glad it happened. And so just being in the midst of it, experiencing the pain, but going, you know what? I don't know how, but I know this is going to be good. I know that, that this, this suffering, this trial is going to produce something in me that I'm going to want. What if we could do that in the midst of it? And I, and I think that's exactly what James is saying. If you're able to do that in a moment, praise God. Praise God that he's maturing you and growing you up and you've got a hope that even in the midst of trial, there, there will be victory. Okay? Now, he goes on. Two other things that we need to do that are even harder than the first. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I got to do something that I don't like to do. Okay, I, I very rarely do it. Um, and, and, I, and I tried really hard to figure out how not to do it this week. But I, but I got to do it. Okay, um, Over the years, there has been pretty much two understandings, interpretations of this passage. One is um, that this passage is about physical sickness, physical healing. The other is that this passage is about spiritual weakness in the midst of trial, falling victim to suffering and responding badly, and then kind of repenting and being raised up and encouraged in the midst of it. Okay? So when a translator goes to the Greek or goes to the Hebrew, they don't have the ability oftentimes to reflect the tension, reflect both ideas, and so they just kind of have to pick a lane. Unfortunately, they, they pick the lane that I disagree with. Okay? I think this passage is not about physical healing and physical sickness. I think this passage is about spiritual weakness and sinning in the midst of suffering. Okay? And, and I'll, give you, I'll give you five reasons why I think that's true. But let me start with the reason that's not the reason. Okay? Most of the time when, when commentators and pastors come to this passage and try to, try to say that it's spiritual weakness and not physical healing, they do so because they fundamentally disbelieve that today um, the, the Holy Spirit heals people physically. They, they are what they call cessationists, meaning the miraculous gifts, tongues, healing, miracles, uh, prophecy, those kinds of gifts aren't for today. They had their day in the apostles' time. They are no longer existing for today. So, And I don't want to get to the motives of their heart, but the motives of their heart are um, that they want to explain away a passage like this because it doesn't line up with their other theological convictions. Now, let me say this. I agree with them on the interpretation of the passage. I disagree with them um, on, on their cessationist views of the miraculous gifts. And we as a church disagree with them on that. We believe we are continuationists, meaning we believe those miraculous gifts happen today. We believe people can be healed physically. We believe people can speak in tongues, prophesy, et cetera, et cetera. So that is not my motivation for my understanding of this. I think it just makes more sense textually, okay? So for the four of you that cared about that, um, now we can continue. Here's why. Here's why I think that. One, it's consistent with the context of the entire book, 
right? Th this whole book has been about suffering and, and suffering well and not falling into sin in the midst of the suffering. I mean, the immediately preceding paragraph was about that. Right? The, the poor people were not suffering well. They were sinning in the midst of their suffering. James called them out on that. And so for the flow of the whole thing, thinking from chapter 1 to chapter 5, and then all, just in chapter 5 both, I'm just thinking flow and context, it makes way more sense that he would be going, listen, you're sinning in the midst of your suffering. It's revealing your spiritual immaturity. Therefore, do this. Pray, call the elders to pray, and then the third one. Right? Makes more sense. It would seem out of place for him all this time to be talking about suffering well and trials and all this. Get to the end and go, oh, by the way, if anyone's sick, call the elders. They'll pray for them and they'll get healed. Okay? Seems like a strange way to end the, end the passage and end the entire book. Strange way. It's kind of a little left turn. Okay? So I think it makes better sense in the flow. Second, he says in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. Right? So... What we see here is a, a promise that every time someone prays the prayer of faith for someone to be healed, they will be healed and they will be raised up. My experience, and I think the rest of Scripture, also testifies to the fact that sometimes it's God's will to heal a person. Sometimes it's not God's will to heal a person. In, in, in my life, I've prayed along with other pastors, sometimes by myself, prayed for dozens of people to get healed. Dozens of people. Sometimes they get healed, and it's fantastic, glory to God, miraculous, uh, amazing moment. Sometimes they don't get healed. When God wants to heal them, he does. When God wants them to suffer through something, they'll suffer through something. If God wants them to die, they'll die. Right? So, my experience and the rest of scripture tells me that this, this certainty with which James talks about whatever is going on here wouldn't be consistent with, with the kind of will of God uncertainty that marks the rest of scripture and our experience. So that's number, we'll say two. Number three, he goes on to say, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this, this is strange too. If it's talking about physical healing for him to go, hey, if anyone's sick, call the elders to pray for him and he'll be forgiven of his sins. Because he's sick? That's a smoking deal. Just get sick and your sins are forgiven? That's great. Or, or pray to be healed from sickness and the sins are... Well, what's the connection there when we've got Jesus in the Gospels and Paul both saying, listen, sickness is not a result of sin. If we want to put those two things together and go, hey, if you're sick, it's because you're in sin, then this whole thing makes more sense. The problem is Jesus says that's not true. Paul says that's not true. Okay, that sickness and sin don't necessarily have anything to do with one another. Okay? So for him to go, hey, call the elders to pray for the sick, and if he's got sins, his sins will be forgiven too, doesn't make any sense. Okay? Um, fourth, it says, the Lord, uh, prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That word for save in the Greek is sozo, which is primarily used to reflect spiritual salvation. So when we talk about someone getting saved from their sins, it's sozo. It's a spiritual word primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. Okay. Lastly, um, the rest of the passage makes more sense, and we'll, we'll see those um, as we get there. But the, the crux of this, though, is James says, listen, if someone is struggling spiritually and they're dealing with suffering 
And it's, they're not dealing with it well. They're really struggling to see what God's will, in is, will is in it. They're struggling to see how they're going to get through it. They're struggling to see what, what the end is. And they're kind of going, why, God, why? Um, they should call the elders of the church. Right? Here's where we can get to the certainty that James has when he says um, that this prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And it's the last reason why I think this is about spiritual weakness. If the heart's desire of the person is to be encouraged, is to be able to honor God in the midst of the suffering, is to work through this trial well and to, to mature and be holy in the midst of that trial, and that is reflected in their, their action of calling the elders or going to the elders and going, listen, I need help. I need you to pray for me then that heart desire to be nearer to God, that heart desire to be forgiven of sin in the midst of that spiritual weakness, that heart desire to be encouraged and raised up so that they can endure the rest of the trial, that heart desire will always be honored by God. Always. God would never turn away an, a heart's honest desire to seek him. God would never turn that away. So what we see is, listen, if this person desires to suffer well, this, des this person desires to just seek God, then they will be saved. They will be raised up, and we can have that level of certainty because their heart desire is reflected in their action of being willing to humble themselves, not only to pray, as we saw in verse 13, but then to go to the elders and go, man, I'm suffering. I'm really struggling. This is going on in my life, and I need you to pray for me. So every week... Every week, Ricardo at the end of service goes, hey, there's elders down front. We'd love to pray with you if you've got something going on in your life. Here's the deal. I don't, I don't know if you guys have been thinking he was lying, but, but very few of you take him, take him up on his offer. Most of the time, the elders, we stand there and kind of look at each other and be like, hey, what's up? Let's just pretend like we're talking so that we don't look awkward waiting for people to come talk to us. That's what we do. And we're standing there. It is our job. It is our desire. It is our vocation. It is our calling to love you and to shepherd you and to pray with you, to care for you. But we can't do that if you don't come and tell us you got something going on. So, yeah, does it take humility to go before God and go, God, I'm suffering. I can't do it on my own. I need you. Yes. Does it take more humility to, to go before the elders and go, listen, I need to lean on my spiritual leaders, those who have been called and equipped by God to shepherd me and care for me. Uh, there's something going on in my life. I can't do it. I've been praying about it, but I need to come to you. I need you to be praying with me. Does that take humility? Yes. Is it absolutely necessary? Yes. To, to be leaning on your spiritual leaders in times of, of need. That's why we're here. That, that's why God has put us in this position, called us, and we've responded, and we're here for you. That, that's the whole idea. And then, and then it gets harder. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay. You're suffering? You got something going on in your life? Pray about it. Go to God. Still suffering? Still got something going on in your life? Go to the elders. Go to your spiritual leaders, people who care about you and love you. Still suffering? Go to your peers. The hardest one of all. To be able to stand, not before God, not before a spiritual leader who's in a position to, to, to help you. It's, their, it's who they are. It's what they do. But to go to a peer and go, I can't do this. 
I can't do this on my own. I'm suffering. I'm, I'm in need. I've got loss. I'm, I'm in pain. My family's falling apart. People are dying around me. I, I need help. To be able to not only come to one another for prayer, but also to confess sin to one another. If, if the context of this is spiritual weakness, there is no doubt that in the midst of spiritual weakness, we are prone to sin. We saw it in, in the, the section before, in verses 7 through 12. Those people in spiritual weakness and their spiritual immaturity in the midst of suffering were impatient, blamed God, argued with one another, grumbled. In, in the midst of sin, or in the midst of suffering, when we are weak and we're not responding right, our, we are prone to sin. Sin against one another by pushing each other away, isolating ourselves, not accepting help from others, getting angry at others because they're not dealing with suffering and we are and they just don't understand, so we get angry and bitter towards them. So there, there is a, a, very, a, a very real call here. There's a real call just, just to be human. Just to be human. That, an acknowledgement that God has created us for community. That we weren't created to be by ourselves. And it's Satan that desires to isolate you. It's Satan that desires to get you by yourself. So he can be the only one speaking into your life, defining your reality, going, you don't need those people. You can do this on your own. You don't even need God. You're strong. You're strong. You're sufficient. You don't need God. You don't need to reach out to God. You don't need to reach out to people around you. You don't need that. This, this, this suffering, you don't deserve this suffering, in fact. In fact, you, you, should, you should probably be angry at God because he has allowed this suffering to come into your life. What did you ever do to God? And so Satan defines your reality by being the only voice that can speak into your life in those moments when you isolate yourself and, and step out of community in the midst of suffering. You lose all ability to be encouraged, to be prayed for, to confess sin, to, to actually be strong enough to make your way through it. You need God. You need your pastors. You need each other. I mean, that's why we and every other good church in the world has communities, groups, Bible studies, whatever they call them. It's not because we've thought of this fantastic strategy to grow a church. It's because we've gone, man, people need people. And so let's help facilitate that. It, I mean, we're not brilliant. We're not even really above average intelligence. It, it's, just, it's just people need people, and we want to kind of facilitate that and go, hey, here's some people to be around. Care for each other. Yeah, is this hard? Yeah, because pride gets in the way. Self-sufficiency gets in the way. It's really hard to, to say, I, can't, I don't have it figured out. My life's falling apart, and I need help. That's hard. It's hard for us. It's hard from when we're really little. It's born and bred into us. It's a lie we're constantly told. You don't need help. You don't need anybody. You can do it. But it's a lie nonetheless. Okay? And then he comes with this great, great line at the end, and the ESV kind of translates it awkwardly, but he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, it's effective, it, it does stuff. Prayer does stuff because we pray to a God who is powerful. We, we just sang Christ alone, I'm, I know I'm going to forget some of the lines, but um, it says, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. That means something. That, that means something. That, that when, when we believe that Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected on the third day, overcoming Satan, sin, and death, and we sing things like, sin doesn't have its grip on me anymore. That means God has been victorious. The resurrection worked. Something happened, and we've been given the keys 
to interacting with God, to experience the power of God, to be healed by the Holy Spirit of God, to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit of God, that sin doesn't have its grip on us anymore. That, that would have been a great moment for an amen. That's good news. That's really good news. That, that prayer is effective and powerful. And don't get hung up on the righteous man. What's righteous? How righteous do I have to be? Am I righteous enough? Because he gives the very next thing, he gives an example. To make the point, you don't have to be anything special. He goes, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was like us. He was a prophet, yes, that was his vocation, that was his calling, but he was just a guy like us. He was, and yet he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Just a normal guy. And yet his prayer was powerful, effective, for accomplishing God's will. And then lastly, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, 19 and 20 makes zero sense as a little addendum to a passage about healing to end the book. That makes zero sense. But if this is the completion, the, the beginning, middle, beginning, the, the wrap-up of what James has been talking about this whole time, that in the midst of spiritual weaknesses, we're growing in our faith and we're struggling with our faith, that we should pray, that we should pray with the elders, that we should pray with each other. And then he goes, listen, the last thing is, if you know someone in the community that's struggling, if you know someone who is a result of suffering and pain has wandered from the truth, he goes, don't wait for them to pray. Don't wait for them to call the elders. Don't wait for them to come to you to pray with one another. Go get them. Go get them. Go seek them out. Go find them. If you know someone that because of whatever's happening in their life has wandered from the truth, don't wait for them to come to us. Don't be passive in this thing. Go get them. Go pray for them. Go tell them, we love you. We love you. We love you. God loves you. We're praying for you. Please come back. Please come be in community. I know you're enduring suffering. I know you're probably embarrassed. I know there's a lot going on in your life, but be with us. And, and James says, pretty profound. He says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He goes, when people wander away from God as a result of suffering, there's a lot of crap that can happen. We've seen it. We've seen it. People, because of one moment in their lives, one, one disappointment, one moment of suffering, they, their whole life just has this chain reaction of sin and rebellion as a result of it. And just goes downhill. And they point back to this one moment where they suffered, and instead of turning to God in their suffering, instead of believing the claims of Scripture that, that we are free from the grips of sin and that God wants to heal, that God wants to move, that God wants to encourage, that God wants to mature, they said, well, God must hate me, and no one went after them. No one grabbed them. No one said, you know, no, no, no. God loves you. God wants you. The gospel is true. If anybody suffered in this world, it was Christ. If anyone endured suffering well, it was Christ. If anyone saw the plan of God in the midst of suffering, it was Christ. I mean, that is the heart of the gospel. So when James here says, listen, in the midst of suffering, just have the right perspective to see what God's doing. There's no better example that we can look to and lean on than the example of Christ, who, though in the midst of the greatest suffering, saw God's plan, saw what God was, I mean, had a moment in the garden where he goes, if it is your will, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the suffering, not wiping it away like some Superman, but going, listen, this is painful. I don't really want to do this. And yet what I want more than what I want, what I want more than my comfort is your will. So your will be done. Christ is our example in this. He is our model. It is through his power that sin has no grip on us. It is because he suffered well and he died and he was resurrected, overcoming Satan's sin and death, that we too can walk in those footsteps, that we can suffer well in the midst of pain and suffering, trial, loss, and death. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our great example. Example of suffering, in fact, suffering that, that you didn't deserve. It's hard to argue that, that too much of our suffering is undeserved, but we know that all of your suffering was undeserved. And yet, Lord, you don't serve only as our example of what it means to suffer well, to not sin in the midst of suffering. Though you could have called down angels to, to fight your battle, you did not. You could have cursed and talked your way out of your problems, but you did not. You could have worked miracles to free yourself from captivity, but you did not. You could have complained bitterly that your punishment was unjust, but you did not. You suffered well. Knowing that in the end it was going to produce something important, something godly. It was going to produce something far more beneficial than the loss you were going to experience. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be able to walk in your footsteps. Learn from your example. Lord, that as you suffered well, the result of that was grace poured out on us so that we might be empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit because sin no longer has a grip on us. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are not believers that this whole thing about trusting God is a foreign concept because they don't know if there's a God there to trust. Lord, so many of them, so many of all of us are experiencing struggle and suffering and trial. God, I pray that you would use this opportunity to make your mercy known, make your grace known, that in the midst of great suffering, we believe in a great God who walks, who shepherds, who cares, who is not distant, who is not weak, who only wants our best, and that we would be moved by faith to love and respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.